Before the human race harnessed the power of fire, there was only darkness, an inky black foreboding abyss that concealed danger, mystery, and fear. Into that darkness brave men would not venture, for as the map says, here there be monsters. Good evening and welcome to Here There Be Monsters podcast. I am your captain, Derek Hayes. We are back to our old format tonight. I had a lot of fun putting last week's Roswell episode together, but I must say, it was very difficult to fit that much information into a single episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Now, before we get started, I want to remind you that if you've had a sighting or a strange experience and you'd like to share your story, please give the Here There Be Monsters hotline a call at 1-888-608-NIGHT. Once again, that's 1-888-608-6444. The call is free and simple. Wait for the beep after the prompt and simply leave your story as you would a voicemail. I'll take care of the rest. As always, if you're not much of a talker, you can submit anonymously by going to www.heretherebemonsterspodcast.com and click on the Report Your Sightings tab. Now, I've been receiving quite a few written submissions lately, and that's great, but I have to be honest. The story in your own voice is much more exciting than me simply reading the tale, so please keep that in mind if you're submitting. I should also point out that I'm still working to collect stories about the phenomenon I'm calling the Mirrored Men, which in short is three strange men dressed oddly walking single file in places they should not be. If you've encountered these men, Please consider sharing your story. You are not alone. Alright, let's move on with tonight's episode. I have listeners from all over the world. Australia, Sweden, Brazil, the Philippines. So it's not surprising to me to receive submissions about entities I've never heard of. Each country, each culture has its demons. Some cautionary, some spawning from real events or real people, but all unique and individually terrifying. Like stories from here in the States, their accounts align themselves with particular regions, historical events, and even groups of individual people. Australia has the Bunyip, a creature that lives in or near bodies of fresh water. According to Aboriginals, some common characteristics of the Bunyip include tusks, flippers, and a horse-like tail. It is believed that they come out at night to feast on animals, young children, and even adults. In Sweden, they fear the dragon, yet another water creature. The dragon is a ghost of a man who died at sea, who has now morphed into a massive and monster-like ghoul covered in seaweed. He rose half a boat on stormy nights, 
searching for drowning sailors and fishermen and sinking their boats and ships. Brazil's most famous cryptid is the Mwapungari, a large beast with one great eye and backwards-facing feet. Its claws are very long and its skin resembles that of a caiman. The beast is said to have a second mouth on its belly, huge and menacing. Tribes throughout the Amazon fear this creature and have done so for centuries. And the Philippines. I'll let my first caller tell you about their most terrifying legend. Hi, here there be monsters. I'm an avid listener. I've been listening for a couple months now. Kind of finally decided to share a story that had happened to me, an experience that happened to me back in uh, 2007. The location was um, Baguio City in the Philippines, the rural mountain town, but now it's turned more into a mountain city. It's in an isolated part of the Philippines that can only be reached through a single road, two-lane road that at some point turns almost into a dead drop, if, which is actually renowned for buses falling over, multiple casualties, etc. I was 13 when this occurred, like I said, in 2007. It was at this uh, mountain camp called Camp John Hay. It used to be a former U.S. military nursing base during the Japanese occupation of the Philippines. We were staying there for my aunt and my uncle's renewal of wedding vows, and we were staying at one of the nursing barracks, which is where they housed all the military nurses, which is where they housed all the local contractors who might have been working on base, providing support for whatever. And these houses were probably built in the early 19, like 1940s, around that time, around that time frame. Well, it was around 2 a.m. that night. There was moonlight shining through the window of the room I was in. I can distinctly recall sleeping on a twin bed, my older brother sleeping on a, on a twin bed parallel to mine. And around three in the morning, I woke up, cold sweat, goosebumps. I can only recall just for the fact that when I woke up, I pulled the sheet onto me because they had ended up at my feet. The Philippines is very humid, but um, it, was, it was unusually cold. I ran my hand down my arm, and I just remember feeling bumps and just shivering. I was looking at the window, which was at the opposite end of the room, and I could see the moonlight shining through. It was very sparsely decorated. It was two beds, a couple chairs, a dresser, and the window. And I tried to turn over, but I had a sleep paralysis type feeling going on. I didn't really want to turn over. I, I, I felt like I couldn't, but I was able to close my eyes after I pulled the sheets over and I could hear a voice. It wasn't calling out my name or anything, but it was speaking in a, it was speaking Tagalog, which is the, the language, um, one of the more popular languages back in the Philippines. And in Tagalog, it was actually saying, Punta Kadito. And Punta Kadito in my language means you come here. And it was, um, it was a female voice distinctly saying it. And I knew that for a fact because it, sounded, it had the high-pitched sound of a female voice. It sounded exactly like, like a woman. She sounded like she was down the hall from our room. Our room was at the end of this long hallway. I'd say the hallway was 20 feet long. 
and uh, we were the last room, the last room at the end of the hallway. Our door was cracked open because how we do it, there's no AC really in the Philippines, third world country. So all the doors are open so everybody can share the air. Well, it, it sounded like it was coming from the living room and all I could hear was the voice of the woman saying, Punta ka dito, kailangan kita. Kailangan kita means I need you in Tagalog. And um, you don't hear it often. Only people who've ever told me that in my language, maybe my mother, my grandmother, but it wasn't them. It wasn't their voice. I knew that for a fact because why would my mom be awake at 3 a.m.? Why wouldn't my grandma be there? For a fact, my grandma was not there. The only other people who were actually in that house with us, it was only my family, and we were staying at multiple we were staying at multiple uh, houses. And the only people who were at that particular house, the one I was staying in with my with my older brother, was my cousin. And she had her own she had her own room, and it was an opposite hallway that wasn't even in the same hallway where our room was located. So I was curious just for the fact that it, it didn't sound like my cousin. Like I I know what you know what your cousins sound like. You you know they have a distinct sound in their voice and even if they're calling you, you you would probably know based off of how they sound. If you've been hanging out with them for three days or so, you'd probably be able to tell it who it, if it was them calling out to you. Well it wasn't. It wasn't her. And she would have no reason to call out to me like that because she knows I don't speak my old language. I don't speak Tagalog at all. I've been raised in, I've been raised in America for up, up until that time, almost my entire life. And I had goosebumps. It's 3 a.m. It's icy cold in a tropical foreign country. And I was just absolutely creeped out because I'd never heard this voice before. And it was, it was saying, Punta ka dito. It was saying, you come here, I need you. And if there, if there was ever something that ever, that ever made all the hair stand up at the back of my neck, that made all the hair stand up on my, on my arms and legs, it was, it was definitely that. And, um, like I said, my, my brother was sleeping on a bed next to mine, on uh, his own bed, his own twin bed. And, uh, he's he's 15 years older than me so at the time he was 28 years old being that I was 13 and I mustered all the strength in me to, to turn over to, to call out his name I, I was calling his name Michael Michael like can you hear that and, uh, doesn't say anything doesn't budge I guess I was saying in too low in too uh, too low of a voice I spoke up and I, I I yelled his name the loudest I could, but all that came out was like a, a little a little voice. But he he uh, he turned over, and he rustled around. He said, "Shut up!" <laughs> I was like, "What? What do you mean, shut up? Do you hear that? Come on, you you gotta hear that. Do you hear it? Do you hear it?" He goes, "Yeah, I hear it. So I want you to shut up and go back to bed." The moon shining through the window at the foot of the room, and our beds are on opposite corners, on the opposite side of the room from the window. The door, which is the entrance to the room, is parallel to the window, so the windows, the moonlight coming through the windows, shining directly 
at the door, which is cracked open, and I was just praying that uh, I was I was just praying that that door didn't slam all the way open or something didn't come through that door. But um, there's actually a local story back in the Philippines. It's very widely known amongst Filipinos. If you spoke to a Filipino and asked him about the Aswang, he'd probably be able to tell you a couple stories. The Aswang is a local Filipino belief that there are some women, maybe even some men, who at night turn into the Filipino vampire. And it's usually during the absence of the moon or during the presence of the full moon where these uh, Filipino witch-slash-vampires go out at night and um, they usually go into the forest or jungle and they usually have an altar dedicated to the devil for their devil worshippers. And being that they're magical, at the highest point of the moon or when the sun is completely absent from the world, what happens is these witches, where vampires, whatever they are, split from their body, as in uh, their their upper torso actually becomes disconnected from the lower half of their body and their legs become pedestals for their upper body to land after they've found their victim. And how it works is the Aswang will find their altar, they'll pray to the devil, and they will split from their body or split from their legs. They will take off into the night with wings like vamp, like bats, like a vampire bat, and they will fly over little towns, small provinces, wary farmers' homes and states that are dislocated from major cities. Basically, wherever there aren't too many people around, that's, that's where they usually like to find their prey, where there's not too much light, where there's not too many people and, uh, they will sing a song or they will sound very pleasant and they will call to you at night to lure you out your home to lure you out your cot to lure you out your shack to come outside and look into the night sky and they'll pick you up after they've bewitched you they will present themselves as a beautiful woman in white or something to that effect and uh, they will bewitch you and after you've looked into their eyes and you've fallen into their gaze they pick you up by the arms and they carry you away they carry you back to their altar and they sacrifice you kind of like a vampire with a sadistic asian twist that, that's what i would compare it to but um yeah that happened that happened back in 2007 i didn't see it i didn't see an entity or anything but i heard a voice my brother heard a voice and we both could confirm it we woke up the next morning and i asked him and he refused to talk to me about it he said the more you talk about it the more it will happen again it'll be worse so i stopped there except for when i asked my cousin if she called her names and she knows herself not to be a sleepwalker because in the Philippines, when you have a family of seven, which is a common thing, all the siblings tend to usually sleep in the same room, which is how she lived. So if she was a sleepwalker or a sleep talker, I'm pretty sure some of her siblings would have told her, and they would have told me. And she said she wasn't a sleepwalker, she said she wasn't a sleep talker. So I don't know where that voice could have come from, but I gotta tell you, the voice... 
I can still think of it now, and I can distinctly hear the voice in my head saying, Punta ka dito, kailangan kita. Um, that was my story. Good luck out there with the podcast. Looking forward to the next episode. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for your call. This is a creature I'd never heard of before this call, which is surprising. You'd think a vampire witch with the ability to fly would have landed on my radar sooner. I was impressed that the caller did his own bit of debunking. He narrowed down the possibilities based on who could speak the language, then distinguished that it was a woman's voice and was able to eliminate possibilities further. One possibility I thought of that he seemed to have missed was the open window. Was it possible that he heard someone from outside through one of the many open windows he'd mentioned, possibly someone deliberately messing with him, or perhaps someone simply calling for help? Either way, it was a great story and a great lesson on the Aswang. Our next submission brings us back to the States and tells of our own famous cryptid. It was February in the late 1990s. Don't quite remember the year as I visited every year. I was visiting my father's cabin near the Seven Devils mountain range in the Rocky Mountains. The snow wasn't that great, but there was a lot of us, so we decided on a simple snowmobile trip to Old Lick Creek Fire Lookout. We made it out there with no real problems and enjoyed a day picnic and horsing around the cabin in the tower. As the sun started to set, we loaded up and started headed back. In the process of turning my sled around, I got stuck. I wasn't yet strong enough to get myself unstuck easily, but I was well trained. I jumped off my sled and started packing snow in front of my sled, expecting my uncles to come help me soon. My whole family sledded away. I wasn't concerned because I knew the strict head counting process and the stops my family made to keep track of everyone. My family literally helped settle Adams County, and I know how to live in this backcountry very well. I even knew, worst case scenario, they'd make it back to the vehicles in about an hour, then turn back for me. Because of the survival training I was given, I knew to never leave your sled. Sleds are easy to find. So I finished packing the snow and even tried to get unstuck myself. But I had no success. So I removed my helmet and then relaxed on my sled with my snacks as I listened to the snowmobiles slowly leave me behind. About an hour or so later, the sun was behind the mountains and the full moon was overhead with not a cloud in sight. The moon reflected off slightly melted snow and had an amazing illuminating effect. You could see almost as well as sunlight. There were multiple long shadows and grayscaling hues. It wasn't long until I had to pee. So I walked toward the woods about 20 feet from me, more out of boredom than anything. And as I was peeing, I noticed a rather large footprint to the right of me. The tracks went into the woods, far enough where I couldn't make them out. It had what looked like toes, but I assumed one of my uncles went into the woods during the day and that the snow had melted in a fashion to mimic a foot. I didn't think too much of it and continued to pee, looking out into the woods, admiring the view you just can't get every day. That's when I saw him or her. As I was getting my gear back on, I saw a bush about a hundred feet into the woods stand up. The bush stood up. Again, I thought it was probably the shadows playing tricks, but I was a little, how do you say, not happy at that moment. 
I watched the short, stout tree that I swore was a bush for several moments, trying to discern movement. I couldn't, without a doubt, say it moved again or not. I concluded that the shadows were messing with me. I walked back hurriedly to my sled and put it between me and the tree line as I slid my helmet on and buckled it in. I looked for the tree slash bush, but it wasn't there anymore. At this point, I was borderline about to lose my sh**. I decided to make a break for the forest cabin about 50 feet behind me. I wouldn't be able to see my sled from there because I was in a bit of a dip, but I knew I'd see the lights and hear the noise of my family when they returned. I stumbled and ran slightly up the hill, occasionally looking back for whatever it was in the woods, but I never saw it. I made it to the cabin and pried on the door. It was locked, of course. Not quite ready to break in a window, I put my back to the wall and looked out towards the wood line. The Bigfoot was standing stoically, still right where I had peed probably 10-15 minutes prior. Just standing there, squared off with me. It had to be at least 7-5 or taller because his or her head was the height of the lowest branches that were just over my head, and I was just short of six foot at the time. We stood like that for what seemed like way longer than I would have liked. I remember being concerned because I wasn't 100% sure I could break the high window and climb into the cabin. Eventually, he or she turned their head to the right in a slightly exaggerated way. After about a moment, it turned and moved quickly back into the woods using the trees to break up its line of sight. I lost sight of it in seconds. I never heard it make a noise, but I was relieved to see it moving away. Shortly after I lost sight of him or her, maybe a minute, I heard the slight rumblings of snowmobiles headed back up the mountain from the direction the Bigfoot looked. Both my uncles came back for me. I ran down to my sled and cranked it so they could see the lights. I told them what had happened while my sled got unstuck. They laughed, but didn't investigate. It was late and everyone was in the trucks waiting. Also, my mama wasn't very happy that I was left behind. So we made haste back to the trucks, and I wasn't sad to be feet out of there. My family still kids me to this day, but my dad and my aunt say they believe I saw a Bigfoot. I have long since convinced myself I saw a bear or an elk, but I'm still not 100% sure it wasn't a Bigfoot. That story was submitted by Jake. Thank you, Jake, for taking the time to pen it. Whatever the creature was, it seemed fairly obvious that the sounds of the approaching snowmobiles scared it off. It's scary to imagine what might have happened had his family not returned for him. Would the creature have moved closer, or was it content just to watch him? It's a captivating story. Thank you again, Jake. Our next call comes from a man who does not believe in ghosts, even though they've driven him from his home on more than one occasion. So I moved to Raleigh, North Carolina in 1998. I lived in an apartment complex or a unit that was only about four units on a regular residential street with regular houses. We were in the end unit. It started out that I would just hear our screen door open, our front door open, and the screen door slammed shut, and then our door slammed shut, and then somebody walked through the apartment. I would think it would be my my roommate at the time, but when I would come out of my room, <clears throat> he wouldn't be there. He left for work about an hour before, about an hour after I did, and came home about an 
hour after I did. One day I came home and all our cabinets and our refrigerator, our freezer, our stove, our microwave, everything in the kitchen was open, anything that had a door. I called him and asked him what he had been looking for, but he said he hadn't been looking for anything and had no idea what I was talking about. Every time something small like this happened, I tried to write it off as something else, and I was the only one having experiences. And these experiences seemed to keep escalating and getting stranger and harder to explain. One night, I was in the apartment in my room doing something, and my friend was on my computer by my front door, which he could, he could see the doorway to my room kind of out of the corner of his eye, and he started talking about whatever he was looking at on the computer, and I could barely hear him. So I asked him what he was talking about, and he, he looked at me kind of like freaked out, and he wouldn't tell me why he was freaked out. We went to a show, uh, see his friend's band play, and we were having a couple of beers, and he told me that he thought he had seen me walk towards him and stand over his shoulder because he didn't look directly at me. So when he turned and saw me standing in the doorway of my room, it freaked him out because he had actually heard me walk up to him, and I didn't hear anything other than him speaking. That freaked me out, and I didn't want to go home, but he wouldn't take me to his house and bring me home in the morning, and he wouldn't spend the night. So he took me to my house, and when we pulled up to my apartment, which it was a single story, four units, we were on the end, and there was a little walkway up to my front door. The walkway itself was just covered in crickets. And he asked me if I was seeing that, and I said, yeah. And I was freaked out at this point. I asked him to take me to his house and bring me back in the morning. I didn't want to spend the night. He said, no way. <clears throat> so I spent the night anyway, and, but nothing happened other than that. Um, not long after that, I had a friend in town and over for some coffee and we were sitting in my kitchen and we heard a whistling coming from the living room. I thought maybe somebody was trying to get our attention, like somebody knocked on the door or something and I didn't hear it. So I walked out into the front room. I even opened the door to see if there was somebody out there and there was nobody there. I came back into the kitchen and sat down and my friend and I just kept talking and both of us heard a very low, deep growl and it was like we were in the middle of a regular exchange and both of us just stopped as soon as we heard it and I asked her if she had heard that and she said yes and again I asked her to just spend the night I'll sleep on the couch she'd take my bed but she wouldn't so I ended up not staying I drove to my parents house about an hour away so these events are escalating one night I was sitting I was in, in my in my living room with two of my friends and we heard clinking. It sounded like change hitting metal. And we went into my bathroom and there were three or four pennies in the bathtub, in our metal bathtub. And just like with every other experience, I always tried to explain it as something else, like there had to be another reason. I'm a complete skeptic. I never believed in any of these stories. In fact, I don't believe anybody's ghost stories when they tell me to this day. And they gave me this look like, you're crazy. That's, <clears throat> there's something going on. We went back into the living room and we're doing whatever we were doing and she had a stereo in my apartment that she was letting me borrow and it came on by itself, volume all the way up on a particular song, a song called One Transmission and it came on on that part where it was just 
repeating one transmission. That, that freaked us all out. We all left the apartment. Again, I went to my parents' house and spent the night because I didn't want to be there. Not long after that was pretty much the, the last time I stayed in that apartment by myself. It never happened again after that. I, it was regular work night, and I was kind of half asleep on my stomach, and I heard a growl right in my ear, and I could feel the breath of somebody who would be growling like right next to me. I could feel the, the breath on my face. I could also smell what smelled like uh, rotting broccoli or some sort of vegetable. I did what I could to ignore that and just go back to sleep <clears throat> when I felt what felt like a person jump onto my back and dig their hands, their, their all fingertips, all their fingertips, into my sides and jolt me like awake. And I rose up and threw my comforter off of me and kind of started looking back. And as I did that, I saw a shape of a human, but white and almost transparent, <clears throat> kind of falling backwards off of me. And that was that. I left my house in my underwear <laughs> and drove to my parents' house an hour away again with no clothes. I had to borrow some from my dad. And I would not, I never went back to that apartment alone or at night until I had a couple of friends move in with me. Um, I just couldn't do it. People still think I'm crazy that, or I'm making it up. But like I said, I tried to explain it as so many different things and just couldn't. And to this day, I still don't know what the hell that was and I still don't believe other people when they tell me their ghost stories which is crazy so that's it I enjoy the podcast and uh, keep up the good work thanks remarkable it's obvious our caller wasn't reacting the way the entity would have liked so it escalated the severity of its actions or at least that's the way it seems in cases like this it's too time consuming to offer plausible explanations for each encounter there simply is not enough episode. Instead, I'd suggest the caller research the area, research the history, not only of the apartment, but of the land it sits on. Perhaps you can find something of historical note that would warrant such activity. Please update us if you do happen to find anything that could explain what you've experienced. Of course, I'll pass that info on to our listeners. Thank you again for calling in, and if you're still in that apartment, set up a few cameras. Do some research, lay out a digital recorder, but above all else, be careful. Our final story of the evening comes from across the pond, Scotland to be exact. This encounter took place at the infamous Loch Ness, but strangely enough, it does not involve a lake monster. In the very hot summer of 1995, I vacationed in a cottage in the small village of Upper Foyers. This is quite high up, overlooking Loch Ness from the south bank. Looking at a map, we were about halfway down the length of the loch, and about a quarter to half a mile from the loch itself. Loch Ness was only visible from the upstairs bedroom, and I got into the habit of peering at the loch any time I visited my bedroom, desperately trying to spot Nessie. One evening at dusk, whilst there was still good visibility... 
I was spending some time Nessie hunting from my bedroom window when I spotted a blue light about the center of the lock. It was quite bright, but not blinding. I couldn't see a boat or a canoe or other craft, just this blue light. Then about 30 seconds later, it disappeared. I could see the spot where it had been clearly, and I still could not make out a vessel or buoy of any kind. I stayed watching a few more minutes, but it never reappeared. To this day, I have no idea what it could have been. I know they run submarine trips out of the small town of Drumna Drocket, but this seemed too far away and not during business hours. Maybe it was phosphorescence, or, but it seemed far too bright. I'd be interested to hear if anyone else has seen the same thing or has an explanation. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Sarah. You know, the first thing that comes to my mind is a drone. Most have lights fixed to them, and they could easily make their way to the center of the lake. But this encounter took place back in 1995. I'm not sure how many drones were in use, if any, back then, so we can probably go ahead and rule that out. Floating orbs over bodies of water is nothing new. Even Christopher Columbus himself cited such a thing on his initial voyage that led him to the Americas. The following excerpt is from UFOevidence.org. While patrolling the deck of the Santa Maria at about 10 p.m. on October 11, 1942, Columbus thought he saw a light glimmering at a great distance. After a short time, it had vanished, only to reappear several times during the night, each time dancing up and down in sudden and passing gleams. The light, first seen four hours before land was sighted, was never explained. In recent years, glowing orbs have been witnessed over Lake Erie near Cleveland, Lake Ontario, Lake Mendora in Wisconsin, and off Fleming Island in Florida. What these things are, no one seems to know. It could be an easily explained natural phenomenon not yet recognized, or perhaps there's something to the stories of unidentified floating objects, or, or the feared USOs, unidentified submerged objects. Thank you again, Sarah, for submitting your encounter. And that does it for tonight's episode. I'd like to thank you all for taking the time to listen. Remember, if you've had a sighting, please share it at one 888 night or head to the website at www.heretherebemonsterspodcast.com. While you're on the site, check out the show notes for each episode. There you will find links to further information about today's stories and all the stories in our library. In addition, it seems iTunes knocks off episodes that aren't recent. So, to listen to this show from its shaky start, you can do so at the website as well. If you're feeling generous, rate and review the show on iTunes. Your review helps bring in new listeners, which brings in new stories, which makes the show better. So, do your part. Don't forget to follow the show on Facebook and Instagram. Help me keep the lights on. Pick up an original piece of my dark art from my shop, the Rag and Bone Emporium. You can find it on Etsy or follow the link at the show's webpage. Punch in the coupon code MONSTER for 5% off your total purchase, just as my gift to you. And my last order of business, Here There Be Monsters Bare Bones. The mini midweek show I promised last week is still coming. I had a little hiccup in hosting, but it's all set now. Look for that coming this Sunday. I promise. Alright folks, Thank you so much for listening, and until next week.
On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts.